What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we're talking about depression. Of course, not so much a happy topic, but one for which there's important work to be done to tackle it, to understand it, and to help many of us live with it. Philip Gold is one of the world's leading researchers on depressive illness, and he joins science communicator and postdoctoral fellow at the Francis Crick Institute, Dr. Gunesh Taylor, to talk about his life's work and new research in his book, Breaking Through Depression. If you want to listen to the full extended version, ad-free and enjoy lots more member-only content, do sign up to become a member to Intelligence Squared over on intelligencesquared.com slash membership or subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts. And also, if you want to keep up to date with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, upcoming events with the likes of Rory Stewart, Mary Beard, Michael Lewis, and a big debate on whether the West should defend Taiwan, just sign up to our newsletter via the link in the episode description. But now, let's join Dr. Gunesh Taylor with more. I am delighted to introduce our guest, Dr. Philip Gold. Since 1974, he has worked at the National Institute of Health, where he has served as Chief Neuroendocrine Research and Senior Investigator in the National Institute of Mental Health Intramural Research Program and the Chief of the Section on Neuroendocrinology. His new book, which we'll be discussing the themes of today, is Breaking Through Depression. And I just wanted to jump straight on in, basically, and say, Philip, what a delight and pleasure it is to have an opportunity to talk to you this evening. I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book, though I'm loath to using the word enjoy, frankly, in relation to depression. But I thought in the interest of getting our, our readers and, and listeners this evening all on the same page, it might be really helpful for us if you could give us your definition of what depression is and clarify the two different types of depression which you talk about in the book. That's something that I certainly wasn't aware of, and I think that our listeners would really, really find that interesting. So what is depression, and what are the differences between the two different types of depression? Yes. Depression is a disorder that occurs uh, because of a combination of environmental factors, stressors, trauma, and genetic factors. And uh, you can become depressed if you have a very strong loading for genetics and uh, a benign uh, environmental course, or if you have uh, a uh, rather uh, stormy environmental course, but few, if any, uh, genetic uh, predisposing factors. It's like coronary artery disease. Coronary artery disease uh, has genetic factors, but it occurs in a predisposing environment. If you overeat, 
you don't exercise, if you're stressed, uh, these will, this is the predisposing environment. For depression, the predisposing environment is early loss, uh, unavailable or uh, excessively demanding parents and stressors throughout the life cycle, uh, especially many and some severe. Now, uh, I, I will actually define depression by telling you about melancholic and atypical depression. Mm -hmm. Melancholic depression uh, is associated with a depressed mood, uh, feeling, uh, and, and the, uh, the manifestations of the depressed mood include in this form of depression, which belies the term depression, which suggests a uh, suppression of thought and feeling. It's an activation and there is anxiety. And the cardinal manifestation of this form of depression is uh, upsetness of self, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of not being good enough, and fear that this deficient self uh, has no prospects for future gratification uh, because of uh, all the liabilities. And uh, so the anxiety is attached primarily to the self. Uh, depression and melancholic depression uh, is associated with a loss of the capacity to experience pleasure. Mm. That's a very major factor. And in psychiatry, you call that anhedonia, yeah. the incapacity to have hedonic experiences. It's associated with physiological changes, uh, uh, with activation of stress hormone secretion, uh, uh, loss of sleep, especially early morning awakening, and loss of appetite uh, with uh, weight loss uh, actually occurring uh, in many patients with melancholic depression. For melancholic depression, the symptoms are worse in the morning when the stress system is activated, and they tend to soften slightly in the evening when the stress system is inactivated. And as I'll tell you later, I think the pathophysiology of melancholic depression is that of a stress system that has become activated and distorted and stays in the on position. So I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to get into that actually at this point. I know that you were about to tell us about the other kind, but um, I think it's really important to address the fact that, um, you know, the, you are one of, um, one of the, the, the people who has spearheaded the, the understanding of depression as being um, a sort of stress response that is gotten out of control, if I understood the book correctly, at least. Um, and you, you know, you, you told us a bit about melancholic depression and how um, the, the physiology of it and how it manifests differently over the course of even a day, which is something that I didn't know at all. Um, and so I wondered if you could um, talk to that a little bit and say, well, you know, where did, where did this idea come from that depression is actually a sort of physiological, is physiological in its root? I wrote a two-part paper in the New England Journal of Medicine about depression represented a dysregulation of the stress response. And uh, I came upon this idea when I looked at the clinical and biochemical manifestations of depression and see, especially melancholia, and see how much it mirrored the stress mm. response. response is associated with anxiety, but it's not excessive anxiety that interferes with developing a plan to deal with the stressor. In melancholic depression, the anxiety is enormous and overwhelming. And as I mentioned, it's attached to the self. There are feelings of worthlessness, 
uh, and a sense that uh, one is going to be disconnected uh, from others because of their deficiencies and will be unable to to work uh, or to love. Mm. Uh, that's the anxiety of melancholic depression. Uh, uh, the uh, other manifestation of stress is a slight decrement in the capacity to uh, experience pleasure. Uh, you don't want to be distracted by a beautiful scene, uh, by, by uh, eating, by the temptation to sleep, mm. by sex, or by any other distraction. So the capacity to be uh, attracted to these uh, uh, stimuli is reduced in depression, but only in, in, in stress, but only to a moderate degree. Uh, and it does not interfere with the capacity to deal with the stressor. In major depression and melancholic depression, the capacity to experience pleasure is virtually abolished. Right, this anhedonia that you mentioned. And that's a, that's a terrible feature of depression, that you can't enjoy mm. the things that you enjoyed in the past. You can't enjoy your family. You can't enjoy your friends. You can't enjoy uh, feelings about yourself, which are so negative. Can't feel proud of past accomplishments. They seem mm. trivial and, and irrelevant. So that's a, a second correspondence between the stress response, but showing how much more severely affected this parameter is uh, during melancholic depression. Fascinating. Tell us about the other type of depression. The other type of depression is atypical depression. And it seems like, and so by the way, this form of depression, melancholic depression, seems like an activation of the stress response, as I mentioned, but it's being distorted and markedly accentuated. Atypical depression seems like the antithesis of melancholic depression. It is not associated with anxiety, but rather a sense of uh, uh, not being connected to self and to the outside world, to one's uh, memories. Uh, melancholics are bombarded by negatively charged emotional memories of loss and failure, and patients with atypical depression are not. Um, they sleep too much, mm. they eat too much, uh, they have fatigue, and in contrast to uh, melancholic depression, the symptoms are worse in the evening when the stress response is down because atypical depression represents in an activation of the stress response, a state of uh, 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 distance from one's uh, upsetness and uh, anxiety uh, and uh, uh, many external stimuli. Uh, uh, atypical depression, patients often feel lonely because they feel out of touch, not only with themselves and their memories, but with others, even their children and their husband uh, or wife. So that uh, uh, these are the features of atypical depression. They, uh, they differ. Atypical depression occurs uh, more earlier in the life course. And uh, it, it is not necessarily exacerbated during its course by stressors, whereas melancholia occurs later on uh, the peak incidence is during mid to late adolescence, mm. but it can occur any time uh, during the life cycle. Uh, so uh, that is quite different uh, from atypical depression as well. One other thing about atypical depression, there is some suggestion that patients with atypical depression have a greater incidence of early life trauma, like sexual abuse, 
or other forms of abuse uh, compared to non-depressed patients, but this is not true of melancholia. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I mean, that's so fascinating. Um, I, I'm a biologist, um, so I, I love I love the study of this kind of thing. But um, as a human being, of course, I've also rubbed shoulders with um, with this terrible condition at times, and I found it really interesting, actually, that um, to you, it it's it it and your field is it's so apparent that there are these two very different types of depression, whereas most of us just talk about depression as if it's the same thing. And if yeah. there's something that I really picked up throughout the course of your book, it's that they are very different manifestations. They they present very differently. And of course, and you know, a big part of your book is about this. The way that they should be therefore managed has to be quite different. Yes. The medications that atypical depressed patients respond to are different than some of those that melancholic patients respond to, and vice versa. So the uh, differentiation may make a difference in the choice of antidepressants mm. and in the form of psychotherapy and the recognition that uh, the melancholics and atypicals are struggling massively but in different ways. Wow. I mean, if I can put you a bit on the spot, I think they, they estimate that about one in five people will suffer at some point in the course of their lives of depression. Yes. What is the what is the relative distribution of, of you know, how many people do, will... I'm basically asking, is melancholic depression more common in that case than the atypical? They're probably similarly uh, hmm. uh, common. Uh, each um, uh, is uh, equally represented in the, in the population, 
so that uh, 10 or 15% of patients of individuals will have a melancholic depression and 10 or 15% of uh, individuals will have an atypical depression. Melancholics don't tend to shift into being atypical and atypicals don't tend to shift into being melancholics. Gosh, that's really fascinating as well. Um, And of course, you already mentioned the fact that the atypical depression tends to happen in people who uh, are somewhat younger and have typically been through trauma, which is something that you talk about in the book as well, about how um, the sort of life stories of of different people um, can really influence what type of depression they end up with and therefore the kind of treatment that they need, of course. Yes. By the way, I'll tell you, wrote a paper about uh, young, very young children, infants in orphanages. And he found that, uh, well, in the first month or two or three, they cried when they were not attended to or when mm. they were or when something went wrong or frightened them. But as time progressed, uh, they withdrew and they stopped uh, uh, responding to other people. They stopped crying when they were hungry or upset. And they turned down their emotional system, mm. uh, perhaps to protect them from overwhelming uh, distress. And that may be a severe form of atypical depression. And that atypical depression may represent an effort to tamp down uh, feelings uh, rather than to uh, be in greater touch with them. Mm. That reminds me, throughout the course of the book, you tell extremely powerful um, stories, both of your own life and of the lives of other uh, colleagues and people who write um, who've written these books. And, and um, I wonder if I may, which of the stories that you recount in the book did you find the most challenging to, to share with, with your readers or to recount? I think the one about my own depression when I was around 20, which was the only one I had, was the most difficult to render. And it worked quite a while uh, to, to get it into, uh, 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 into its uh, final form. And um, it taught me a lot about depression. Uh, and I don't underestimate the p- profound impact it has on people, how painful it is, and how uh, much of a relief it is to have it pass. And uh, uh, I came ultimately to believe that because the stress system is so intimately involved and stress alters the uh, structure and the function of the stress system in brain and causes uh, loss of tissue and neurodegeneration mm. that uh, uh, there are very serious physio- physical uh, consequences of depression, but they can be treated effectively. Yeah, I was genuinely struck by that in, in the book as well about, I think this, the number you said was somewhere in the order of seven to 10 years will get knocked off the, the sort of life expectancy of somebody who undergoes major depression. That's right. And that's independent of suicide. That's because the physiological components of these depressions, which I'll now mention, uh, which can go on for months or even years, uh, uh, affect uh, multiple hormonal systems, sympathetic nervous system, uh, and depressed patients. Uh, surprisingly, are very inflamed. They have much inflammation in the brain and much inflammation in the body. And that's because stress precipitates inflammation uh, in the brain and the body. 
And I think the reason that's so is that in very early uh, thousands of years ago, uh, when individuals uh, uh, perceived the danger of stress, they had a full-blown stress response uh, to uh, premonitorily protect them uh, if they got into a fight or flight or mortal struggle uh, with uh, another being. And I think for that reason, uh, stress precipitates uh, the stress response even now. So that if uh, emotional stress, like public speaking, public speaking, causes an activation of the stress response and a change in, in many of these physiological parameters that I mentioned, inflammation, uh, increase in stress hormones, uh, and a variety of other changes that uh, adversely affect body. So that because of these changes, depression is also a systemic disorder. So that patients have premature uh, coronary artery disease, stroke, uh, diabetes, and osteoporosis. And uh, that shortens their lives by seven years. And so it's a major medical emergency, actually, to have depression. And I think that's poorly understood, that it's associated with severe and long-lasting physiological changes that shorten the lifespan, and that the depression needs to be treated, and that before the depression is treated, perhaps uh, prophylactic uh, medications can be given to decrease the propensity to coronary artery disease, stroke, diabetes, or osteoporosis. That's a really interesting point. And of course, I mean, I think uh, part of the reason why this book is so timely is, um, thankfully, there's starting to be a bit more of um, sort of public awareness around the around depression and mental health in general. So, you know, your book comes at a one, you know, at a good time basically to help um, stoke on those conversations. Um, I go ahead. I was going to say I was struck by um, how what you just said so eloquently about how um, effectively depression uh, has these incredibly sort of physiological effects and how um, that was then, that basically translated historically into this realization that perhaps if we address those physiological systems, we might be able to um, feed back into the the sort of the the, the resolution of the depression, right? So yes. that's the idea of antidepressants, yes. if I'm understanding correctly. And because of this, given the uh, tremendous suffering psychologically, the changes in cognitive function, the difficulty thinking clearly, mm. and because uh, these premature systemic diseases, the World Health Organization ranks depression as the second greatest, greatest cause of disability worldwide and the greatest cause of disability in individuals under 40. Yeah, I mean, I can believe that. I mean, especially after reading this book, I, I really have to say, I think it, it really opened my eyes to, to the severity of the circumstance. But um, it also leads me to, to asking you, so obviously a substantial amount of what you wrote about is, is um, to make some assumptions about your readership and, and maybe share too much about myself. But if you pick up a book about depression, inevitably, of course, some of us are slightly interested in the intellectual pursuit of understanding what it is. And, um, but I suspect most of us want to know how to help right? Either help ourselves or help those around us who um, might be undergoing um, depression. And you talk a lot about the different kinds of treatments and therapies and the sort of the, the, the history of how they developed. And of course, you yourself have been heavily involved in that. 
could you could you give me as or us uh, who are listening to this a real sense of what happened in that in that case where you told us the first time you used SSRIs on a patient and over the course of a few weeks saw their condition improve. I mean, what what was that like to see? I was astonished and elated to see it. I've actually trained in a psychoanalytically oriented uh, psychiatric training program and never used medications until I got to the NIH. So this was the first time I saw a patient snap out of a depression mm. almost uh, in a moment uh, after three weeks on an antidepressant. And I thought it was extraordinary. And I regretted the fact that we didn't use medication during my residency. Yeah, I mean, I I could only imagine. I mean, especially after hearing about how depression had previously been treated and how, you know, the history of, of these very difficult circumstances that patients would find themselves under. Um, it, it, yeah, it really struck me reading it. But also, you know, having hope in these circumstances is really critical, right? So yes. you, I have to say, I was struck by the fact that by the end of the book, I was thinking, well, okay, so um, I've learned that depression comes in two different forms, this sort of melancholic kind and this atypical kind, and that the way they manifest in terms of literal times of day is very different. But it seems that in in explaining all these differences, you also present um, all the different possible handles that we could use to try and improve a patient's condition. So, for example, um, you know, you talk about how sleep cycles can really improve, or refining a patient's sleep cycles can really improve their their outcome. Right? That's correct. Uh, the the uh, especially melancholia who lose sleep. If you help treat their sleeplessness that begins to ameliorate the intensity of the depression. That's amazing, isn't it? Yes. And if, you, and if patients have bipolar disorder and they're depressed, if you sleep deprive them, they switch into mania. So they need to get good sleep as well, or they will uh, be beset by uh, manic symptoms. I mean, you say it so so calmly and coolly. To me, I was I was genuinely like... A mixture of intellectually awed, but also genuinely filled with a sense of hope. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I understand that sleep is not easy to come by, but what a wonderful set of, of possible therapies you place in front of us. There was sleep, there was the, the effect of hormones, there was different kinds of um, chemicals as well, right? You talked a lot about lithium, I believe there was a chapter on that. Yes. One other thing, in addition to the medications, which we'll talk about, because it's the stress system that is affected, and because stress affects the structure and the function of the stress system, uh, patients with depression actually have death of cells in components of the stress system that encode uh, the depressive syndrome. But in addition, the burden of uh, early environmental stresses it is very important uh, to along with uh, pharmacological treatment of depression, the patients receive psychotherapy because uh, if they have uh, uh, behavioral traits or conflicts or uh, ideas that predispose them to depression uh, and they're not addressed, they may override the uh, efficacy of antidepressants. And I gave a case history of someone uh, who responded to psychotherapy it's very clear in this case history, if this person had not responded, 
the level of his conflicts and the uh, distress they caused him would have been his positive response uh, to medication. Yes, I'm really glad you raised that. Of course, therapy is something that um, I, I personally always thought it was really critical. And it was wonderful to see you actually front load that in your in your armory of things that we can do to help p- patients with depression. Yes, because of course. I, we say it as if, you know, it's easy to come by, but actually securing therapy is, at least in the UK, extremely challenging to get hold of therapists. So could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, just in, in terms of the relative balance of, of therapy versus a sort of chemical or physiological intervention, um, what what are the relative importances? They're both important. I found that actually when patients are giving antidepressants and they respond, they uh, participate much more actively and freely in psychotherapy. Mm. I think that there may be patients who will not respond to psychotherapy alone because the biology is so powerful. Mm, that's so really interesting. I would start lower, but I would start with uh, psychopharmacology uh, and then try to get a response and continue afterwards uh, rather than stopping uh, the psychotherapy. Uh, to uh, put together the picture of why someone might be vulnerable uh, to depression. While talking about that, um, there has been a lot of discussion these days, or a rise in popularity, at least, in, in this idea of, well, both in terms of biohacking, so in terms of using technologies and, and chemicals to sort of optimize our bodies and, and cure these things, uh, sort of ailments that we have, but within that, of course, psychedelics are, are undergoing quite the renaissance, and um, the big the big field at which they're supposedly you know being hailed as being so critical is um, depression uh, and drug de- uh, drug resistant depression in particular. And and you have a chapter on the matter. So could you could you tell us uh, tell us how you felt the first time you heard about these psychedelics and their potential use in the clinic? I was intrigued, but I'm initially skeptical. But when the data came out uh, and it showed that uh, psychedelics had effects on biological components of the depression uh, that resolved, uh, even before the depression resolved, you know, I became convinced. And the data are now really uh, overwhelming. Mm. New England Journal of has published positive uh, reports about psychedelics treating depression better than conventional antidepressants, uh, I think they're remarkable. And I think they will become very, very important mm. uh, in the treatment of depression. They do two things uh, differently. Ordinary antidepressants take three to four weeks to work. Psychedelics can work after a day, mm. even if, uh, and, and will sustain an antidepressant response to 10 or 12 days, even if no more medication is given. And that over time, if they're given uh, at a certain interval, they can sustain remissions from depression. Uh, the one that has been tested the most is psilocybin. And it's just extraordinary in its capacity to treat depression. It has other positive effects in addition to what you said about uh, drug dependency. Uh, patients with anorexia nervosa respond positively to psychedelics. And I uh, studied anorexia nervosa for many years. And such patients were really very difficult to treat and didn't respond to ordinary antidepressants. So I think uh, these are a powerful modality. And I think the individuals 
who initiated these studies and conducted them earn a lot of her uh, gratitude. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to hear more from Philip and Ganesh, there's an extended version available to Intelligence Squared members. Head to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or hit the try free button on Apple Podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. 